Let's worship the Lord as we open the word together. Acts chapter 17. Familiar portion from uh, the book of Acts and one that uh, I hope you have contemplated from time to time. Of course, Paul and Silas, his missionary band and second missionary journey went to Thessalonica, uh, preached Christ there, did not stay long. And then we pick up in verse 10. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there as well, agitating, stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. And those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. This is God's word. May he write that eternal word upon our hearts. Well, the most basic lesson that I learned as a young Christian as far as biblical interpretation is whenever you see the therefore, you look and see what the therefore is there for. You've heard that for years. You've taught that to others in discipleship groups and, and those kinds of things. And you found it useful, as I have. Uh, reading the word devotionally, you come across a therefore and you pause and you let it sink in. Uh, you have used it when you've taught lessons, when you've been discipling, when you've been preaching. Uh, you've pointed to the therefore, helping people to look back. Think upon what God has declared. Think upon some of the indicatives. So now you begin to see the imperatives. But I wonder, do we pay close attention pastorally? Do we pay close attention as we disciple others to those divinely placed therefores? Do the divine therefores redirect the way we do pastoral ministry, the way we disciple others? Do these therefores corral prideful ambition and prevent manipulation and change the way that we approach teaching and pastoral preaching? Do we believe the divine therefores triumph over the latent tendency to dictate the outcomes of ministry? Therefore, infers something has happened or something will happen. Our beloved BDAG puts it like this, Therefore, is that which it introduces is the result of or an inference from what precedes. So several things are happening here when you see a therefore in Scripture. Either some action needs to be taken. For instance, Paul lays out Romans 1 through 11 and then gets to that memorable therefore in Romans 12, 1, therefore present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. And so here's this response. So all of this doctrine that the apostle has laid out. Or in Romans 13, verse Two, uh, Paul is talking about the governing authorities 
and the necessity to respond well to those governing authorities. And then he says, therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and those who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Or a third way, and this is what we want to focus on this morning, is that therefore is explaining a necessary action or response to something that has already happened or something that has already been declared. And that's what we find in this text. Therefore, many of them believed. Does that stop you? What was going on so that therefore many of them believed? Something so significant happened in Berea that many of those under the ministry of the word believed the gospel. And they, they welcomed the gospel. They listened to it. They investigated the word of God. And then Luke says, therefore many of them believed. The Lord God works through his word. We've got to see that. I mean, you're being trained for that. But the Lord God works through his word. Therefore, we can count on the gospel-centered proclamation of God's word to bear lasting fruit. Now, how does that therefore inform us in ministry, inform us pastorally? That's what I want us to think about this morning so that the therefores really do affect the way we approach ministry. So, Three things I want us to consider in the text. First has to do with providence, that God's providence moves his messengers to proclaim the word. So God has a reason for the therefore, so he moves the messengers around. If you remember the story in Acts chapter 17, things got ugly really fast in Thessalonica. Paul and Silas had stayed there just a little over three weeks, and they got spirited away from that large city by new believers. Verse 10 the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And so the Jews in the synagogue in Thessalonica really didn't hunger to know the living God through his word. Instead, they reacted to these gospel messengers. And so antagonistic were they to the gospel that they heard uh, that when they found out that the gospel was being proclaimed in Berea, verse 13 says, they went to Berea. It was a long trek, but they went to Berea so that they could reduplicate their opposition. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God, notice Luke's language, he's very careful, when they found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea, they, they came there also agitating and stirring up the crowds. Now, we, we notice the way that Luke describes the proclamation of the gospel. He calls it, the word of God had been proclaimed. In other words, being moved out of their planned location in Thessalonica didn't change the message. Paul and Silas had a gospel-centered understanding and interpretation of God's word. He had no interest in casual Bible studies in order to bolster people's facts about the Bible. We need to make sure that we don't try to entertain people with our teaching and preaching. I think some people go to Bible studies because they, well, isn't this nice? No, we're coming to meet the living God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, Paul uh, was focused 
on seeing Jesus in all of Scripture, not in some kind of artificial imposition on the biblical text, but as the whole movement of the Old Testament pointing toward the revealing of Jesus Christ in all of His redemptive work. Or as Paul put it to the Ephesians in Ephesians 1.10, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. Now these Thessalonian Jews were not against Paul doing a nice Bible study. That would have been okay. But they were angry that the exposition of God's Word revealed God's purpose and plan in sending His Son in answer to the promise in the garden. And sending His Son in answer to all of those promises of the King that would eventually come and be the Savior. They hated this cross-dependent gospel of Jesus Christ that exposed their sin, that called them to repentance and faith, and declared that the only way to God was through this crucified, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, here's the divine irony. When Satan does his best to stamp out gospel work, God acts by his governing authority, by his providence, to redirect and open doors and change directions and bring new people into the kingdom through the preaching of the gospel. Notice verse 10. It seems like Satan had won, but verse 10 says, no, he didn't. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, Berea was not on the main road, the Via Ignatia, but it was in what was called an out-of-the-way town by the Roman orator Cicero. And Cicero did not mean that as a compliment. It was sort of saying, it's a bunch of hicks. That, that, that was the picture. And so it was 20 miles off the beaten path, and you have this little community, and a spiritual awakening breaks out because the gospel is preached among them. So Satan had his plans, and then God's plans topped what Satan intended. The Lord God had been preparing Berea for the gospel, even if Paul and Silas didn't know it, because there were some elected before the foundation of the world that were waiting without realizing it, to hear the gospel proclaimed that they might repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. And so what does the Lord God do? He orders a riot in Thessalonica because they had done the work they needed to do there so that Paul and Silas would end up in Berea because the Lord wanted to save Sopater of Berea. You see his name pop up in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, toward the end of the third missionary journey, and Sopater is accompanying Paul on his way to Jerusalem. God wanted to save him. That was his eternal plan. So what does he do? He just stirs up everything, redirects, and Paul and Silas end up coming to Berea, preaching the gospel, and Sopater and others came to faith in Christ. So Satan thought that he was running them out of Thessalonica. Instead, the Lord was sending them to proclaim the good news that he might save a people in this out-of-the-way place. And this providence continued when Paul got to Berea. Verse 15, things started getting stirred up there when the Jews from Thessalonica came to Berea. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens. Why Athens? Because 
the Lord wanted to save Dionysius, the Areopagite, and Damaris, and some others. And so he moves him out and sends him. When I was a ministry student in college, I probably didn't know much of anything about God's work of providence. I mean, I knew the word providence, but I just, I just hadn't thought on it very much. But that didn't mean God would not work in acts of providence, His governing to accomplish His purposes in my life. And so the dean of the school asked me if I was interested in, a, in an internship at one of the local churches. I said, yes, I'd love to do that. And so uh, another guy and I applied to go to the prestigious first church downtown where the elite and the, the real well-to-do in the city attended church. I just knew that's where I needed to be. That was me. I, I just knew God was leading me there. And so the dean told me, no, they've chosen this other fellow. We'll find something else for you. And so he tells me about this little fishing town 45 minutes away from the college and said they're interested in having an intern. And so a buddy of mine drove me down on a Wednesday night, and I'd never been in a town like this. I'd never seen anything like this. And so he said, what do you think? And I said, it's different. It's really different. And then we visited the church, and, and I kind of had the same feeling. The, the buildings were kind of run down. There was nothing exciting going on. Nothing jumped out at me like, wow, this is going to be phenomenal. But they offered. I accepted the position. And it was one of the most incredible things that ever happened to me by God's kind providence. The Lord worked in a true spiritual awakening back, back in the 70s. Uh, we saw that so many people converted uh, in, in our community. And I had the opportunity to disciple a bunch of new converts. And many of them are faithfully serving the Lord in churches today. And one of them that I discipled introduced me to his cousin. And I married her nine months later, and I've been married to her uh, for 46 years. So you see what God does in his providence? Here, here's the reality. We must learn to love and trust the wisdom of God and the way he works in our lives. You may say, well, I'm, I'm not a pastor. That's fine. God still works in providence. He's still governing your life. And so he's moving you. You will not always go where you think you should go. That's right. Some of you may get kicked out where you thought you should stay. And some of you will wish you could get kicked out so you wouldn't have to stay and endure hardships. And that's the reality. But God has a work for you. You're committed to him. You're committed to be a faithful messenger. He has people he will call out of darkness into the light of Jesus Christ by putting you where you least expect to be. They need the gospel so that the divine, therefore, many of them believed, might be unleashed among them. But second, think about faithfulness in God's proclam in the proclamation of the gospel, that faithful Gospel proclamation, where providence puts you, leads to divine therefores. Paul and Silas didn't complain about having to leave the Via Ignatia and wander down the pig trails to get to Berea. 
But they made their way there. Verse 10 says, when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. And there, as the Thessalonian Jews later heard, verse 13, the word of God was being proclaimed there by Paul. But Berea was not on their ministry plan, but that did not matter. God put them there, and so they began to proclaim the word of God. Now, we, we know the Bereans eagerly received the word, and they examined the scriptures to see whether the things that Paul and Silas were teaching and preaching were so. Verse 11 tells us that. But what did they preach? And this is really at the heart of the divine therefores. Why could Luke say in verse 12, therefore many of them believed? What was the content of what they were preaching and teaching, and how was God working among these people? I think we have a good idea of that because of the pattern that Luke records in this brief visit to Thessalonica. Notice verses 2 and 3 of chapter 17. For three Sabbaths, they reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus who I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. So they they reasoned with them. They appealed to the minds. They gave substantial argument for what they were proclaiming. Their reasoning did not indulge in clever philosophical discussions, but their reasoning centered upon the Scriptures. They proclaim the Word, the Old Testament Scriptures. Obviously, that was what they had. And from that Old Testament, they explained and they gave evidence that the Messiah had to suffer and had to rise again from the dead. And then they drew the conclusion. Here was their hermeneutic. They drew the conclusion, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. So I put it like this. Their preaching came out of a Christocentric hermeneutic, a Christocentric way of interpreting the Scripture. Their teaching, their preaching was full of biblical theology. They interpreted the Scriptures as speaking of Jesus their Lord. And they took passages that had been familiar in the synagogue, and they interpreted it in the way that Jesus had taught his disciples and even taught those who were not his disciples. You remember what he told the religious leaders in John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is these, the scriptures, that speak of me. And then in Luke 24, 27, to those disciples on the Emmaus Road, Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And then to the disciples gathered later after the resurrection, Luke 24, 44 and 45, uh, he said, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. So Jesus is teaching that the Scriptures speak preeminently of him. So let me ask you this. Do the things you preach on Sunday, or the things you teach to that discipleship group, or that Sunday school class, or that Bible study group that you're in, would those things be perfectly suitable in a synagogue, or in a civic club, or a supper club, 
Would they be suitable there? I mean, I shudder to think of some of the sermons I preached in early years that fell into that category. Or do our sermons, do our Bible lessons, does our teaching and discipling show that we understand the Word from a Christ-centered frame? A number of years ago, my wife and I were in the upper Midwest. I'd spoken to a group of pastors, and we stayed over a couple of days in that state and decided we'd visit an SBC church. And so we, we attended uh, this church, and the pastor read from the Beatitudes. I was kind of getting pumped. Good, good. I remember preaching through the Beatitudes, and I thought, okay, I'm ready. And aside from mentioning Jesus once, literally once, and at his closing prayer, he did say in Jesus' name, so I guess I'd give him two times. He could have preached that sermon in the synagogue, and they wouldn't have been upset in the least bit. It was not a, it was not a biblical sermon. It was not a Christian sermon. Do we teach and preach believing that all of Scripture is revealing to us Jesus Christ in all of his majesty and glory and beauty. If you would see the divine, therefore, then labor at this point in your study. Labor at this point in your preaching. Labor at this point in your Bible teaching. That means you work hard at exegeting and understanding the text so that in proclaiming it, those who are listening will see that you have reasoned and explained Jesus Christ from the biblical text. When we do that, we teach those that we're teaching to be faithful interpreters of the word as well. Will those hearers understand the gospel for all of life when we teach and preach? Do we point them to the only one who saves and sanctifies? Do we magnify the Lordship of Jesus Christ when we teach and preach. You see, we, we need to think, are we leaving our, our people that we're, we're teaching, we're preaching, do we leave them with this consciousness that they must act upon the Word of God by believing and living in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Paul did that in Thessalonica and got run out of town. And that may happen to some of us in this room. Or you'll feel like it's going to happen to you. But notice, they came to Berea, verse 11. And the Bereans were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. When we proclaim Christ so that the divine, therefore, has a foundation and a rationale, we're showing what God alone can do. Through Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit was obviously cultivating what was happening in Berea. And that brings us to the third consideration in this text. Uh, as we have followed God's providence, we're faithfully proclaiming the word. We want to see those divine therefores unfolded. And so how does the Spirit and how does the Spirit use us in cultivating an atmosphere where the word of God is welcome. Well, Luke distinguishes these Bereans. He said they were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. Not smarter, but of a different character, different sentiment. They received the word with eagerness, he tells us in verse 11. They searched the scriptures daily to see whether the things that 
Paul and Silas had been speaking to them to see whether these things were so. They had listening ears, unlike the Thessalonians that, that covered their ears. Now, these Bereans faced the same kind of barriers that those in Thessalonica face, of being able to grasp the, their own inadequacy of understanding the Scripture and seeing where their faith had been misplaced and then realizing that apart from repentance and faith in this crucified, resurrected Jesus of Nazareth, there is no salvation. And so they examine the Scriptures to see if these things were so, therefore many of them believed. Do you see that connection? There's something about being a people of the book. There's something about teaching and preaching from a Christ-centered interpretive point that spills over in these divine therefores. And so they receive the word with great eagerness. They're examining the scriptures. They're seeing if things, these things are so. Does that sound like the people that we are preaching to on Sundays or we're teaching in that small group? You may say, eh, not quite. Okay. What needs to happen for that to take place? I mean, isn't it fascinating? The Thessalonians kick Paul and Silas out. The Bereans are welcoming them. Isn't it, isn't it interesting what is happening there? How do you, do you just say, they're just great folks there. And these others were, I mean, they were just knuckleheads in Thessalonica. I mean, what, what do you do? The Spirit of God was at work. So how are we to help to cultivate people to understand the Scriptures so that they really do respond to these divine therefores? Well, one writer points out that preaching is not a one-sided endeavor. It is a joint venture between the preacher and the listener. And then he compares it to a pitcher and a catcher. Both of them have part in the pitching process. And then Spurgeon adds, We're told men ought not to preach without preparation, granted. But we add men ought not to hear without preparation. Which do you think needs most preparation, the sower or the ground? So we mustn't presume that when we've worked really hard at preparing to preach and teach, that those who are there are prepared to listen. Listening to the Word proclaimed is a spiritual work. There's a battle taking place. You're sitting in that room with, with a half a dozen uh, teenagers trying to teach them. There's a battle taking place. The flesh is trying to pull their minds into all kinds of crevices so they don't see the light of the Word. The enemy of their souls is opposing them so that they might get distracted and their hearing might be dulled. For them to listen takes patience and humility and discipline to train their minds. And so how do, we, how do we cultivate that kind of thing? Well, since the Bible is a spiritual book, our congregations are only going to know it superficially unless they're devoted to the God of this book. The Bereans experience this divine therefore as they eagerly welcome the Word and examine the Word. And what I've discovered in 44 years of pastoring is if we don't try to cultivate 
people hearing the word, they probably won't listen very well. So let me give you five essentials to help cultivate. One, regularly teach on the word's authority and sufficiency. If people really believe the word, you know, we say, yeah, we believe the Bible. Do we believe it? Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. If they believe that, then it's worth listening to, and they'll see that this word is a lamp to their feet and a light to their path and altogether sufficient. Second, from the pulpit, in the classroom, and certainly in private prayer, regularly pray for the congregation to learn the word. It's a spiritual work. Uh, The psalmist says, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. And in this spiritual work, we're pleading with the Lord to break down barriers and to change hearts and minds. Third, model for the church and teach them to regularly read the word devotionally. Uh, It's important that on our part, we go to the word to deal with sin to yield to Him in obedience, to humbly trust Him, to rejoice in His promises, to see the beauty of the gospel. And think about how the psalmist wrote, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Sweetness grows with regular practice. Uh, the, The people we're shepherding, the people we're discipling, will take hints from us in the way the Word spills over into our conversations, into our counseling, into our pastoral visits, into our teaching, into our preaching. If the Word affects us, it's going to start affecting those who are listening to us. Fourth, in your sermons, in your Bible studies, teach your people the need to apply the Word daily instead of treating reading the Word as a nice hobby. Give them the word so that the word might take root, that you might press those divine therefores, that they might hear and meditate upon and pray through the, the, the passages they're reading and apply those words. Your testimonies are wonderful, the psalmist says. Therefore, because it's wonderful, my soul observes them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. And so we help our people learn to hear, apply, and obey And then fifth, teach your people to learn the Word comprehensively. That means a lifetime of learning to read and listen to, meditate on, and study the Word. Don't let them give excuses. Well, I'm no Bible scholar. I haven't been to seminary. How many times have I heard things like that? Be a student of the Word. We're talking about the Word that stands forever, the Word that reveals Christ to us, the Word that declares the only foundation of eternal hope. We're talking about the Word full of divine therefores. And the Lord acts upon His Word. Therefore, many of them believe. That's what happens when we proclaim that Christ-centered Word. Yesterday, I got an email from a young man that's in his... Eh, probably mid-30s now, and he and his family were in our church for many years, and they moved all, all over the country. His youngest brother was not a believer. He acted pretty disinterested, but he listened. And he sat in our church for years. He's a college grad now. He's probably in his mid to late 20s. And he, he listened. I almost thought he was a bit agnostic. And so this, this young man that sent me the note said, I wanted to tell you, 
that he came to faith in Christ, got baptized, has become a member of a SBC church out west. And the comment he made was, thanks be to the Lord that year after year after year, he kept hearing the word from the pulpit, from the classroom, small group. He kept hearing the word. And I couldn't help but think, hmm, divine therefores. Therefore, many of them believed. Pray with me. Father, we ask that you would enable us who've been charged with teaching and preaching your word to be faithful, to let your word and your spirit go to work, to believe you and trust you that you will accomplish your great purposes for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.